Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Tom Rosenstiel, journalist, press critic, and co-author of the seminal book on journalism, The Elements of Journalism, which is now in its third edition. Rosenstiel is also the author of 10 other books, including four novels. He's currently the Eleanor Merrill Visiting Professor on the Future of Journalism at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. In part one of our conversation, we focused on many issues affecting U.S. journalism, including the health of the industry and how things have shifted. Journalism is in a difficult place, uh, and it's not in one place. It's in actually several places. American media used to be subsidized or fueled economically almost entirely by advertising. Newspapers, about 80 percent. Television, broadcast television, 100 percent. All of that advertising, particularly for magazines and newspapers, has shifted over from the producers of journalism to the platforms that distribute it. So almost all the advertising revenue now belongs to Google and Facebook. Two-thirds of all digital ad revenue is controlled by those two companies. So the future is in getting people to pay for your content. We also discussed the role of politics and the diminishment of local news on the health of the industry as a whole. When we think about the state of journalism, there is a deep partisan media strain that did not exist 20 years ago that is enabling, amplifying, and even exaggerating the political polarization that exists in the country. The way we consume a lot of our media We have lost local as a big connection. But Rosenstiel also said there is hope when it comes to what subscribers want from journalism. When you are measuring your value based on whether people will pay for you, the metrics you use of what matters and whether your content is valuable shifts quite a bit. In the advertising era of the internet, we were in the page view era, clickbait. You know, how many eyes can you get on something? When you shift to what is it that causes people to subscribe, to pay you, the metrics are very different. And what you discover is the content that they value is very different. It's no longer the most popular thing. In fact, what we're discovering in the data is pretty clear on this. It's the high value stuff. The things that journalists themselves think is really important is also what drives subscriptions. It's content that's unique, it's content that's deep, it's content that serves them around some area or topic that no one else can serve them so well at. And so there's a happy convergence between newsroom values and subscriber values that we really haven't seen in the news business in a long time. In addition, we began our conversation about the role of objectivity and bias in journalism, what those words were meant to mean and what they've become as well as a discussion of opinion versus opinion journalism. Rosenstiel reminds us that opinion journalists are indeed journalists who were trained in the art of doing journalism well. Well, the first thing it's important for people to understand is that not all publishing is news. Just because you publish something doesn't mean it's journalism. And in the same vein, not all opinion is opinion journalism. As we say in the elements of journalism, for something to be opinion journalism, it has to adhere to all the same standards as other journalism. You get the facts right, you verify, but it also goes deeper. It means that this opinion is your 
actual independent thinking and not that you're actually secretly a, you know, paid propagandist for one side or another, that you're not really a partisan pretending to be a journalist. They do all the other things that uh, all other journalists do. They just, they're not reporting the news, they're sort of analyzing after the fact. We now continue our conversation on objectivity and bias, as well as how journalism can play a more effective role in better informing the public. Most of these people were journalists and had this sort of religion of verification pounded into them. They would be mortified if they, you know, think of the difference between, uh, well, and this is an important distinction. Think of the difference between a political ad and an interesting political column. One of them is designed to persuade you to think a certain way. The other one, the opinion journalism, is designed to get you to think about something. They're not actually trying to persuade you to a particular political outcome or viewpoint. Um, they want to be provocative to provoke your own thought. And that's really the big distinction between journalism and advocacy. I say in the new edition of Elements that journalism is a form of activism, but it's not a form of advocacy. And the difference is I'm an activist. I want you to think about this. And I want you, Gina, to come to your own conclusions. I'm going to tell you what my interpretation is but you should think for yourself. And that's very different than I am trying to get you to vote on Proposition 3 a certain way. Okay, so what about journalists covering news day to day? There's been this expectation that they remain objective, but we know that humans can't really ever attain that because we all have experiences and perspectives that shape us. So how do we deal with that conversation around objectivity? Objectivity is not neutrality. Um, and that conflation or, or thinking that it is or that that the journalist has no point of view is a complete misunderstanding of what objectivity was supposed to mean. In fact, it was at the, the, the beginning of the 20th century when we began to discover that the subconscious, the unconscious, and unconscious bias, that, that intellectuals said, we need to bring objectivity to journalism. And what they meant was we need to bring objective methods into journalism that I can see how you do it. Jay Rosen, famous uh, uh, journalism professor at NYU, often complains about the, what he calls the view from nowhere, which is this idea that the journalist pretends to be a cipher and have no consciousness. Um, I, you know, I, I am a camera. Um, well, that term, the view from nowhere, Jay borrowed from a book of philosophy by another NYU professor named Tom Nagel. And uh, Nagel in that, uh, Nagel's book, the view from nowhere is a defense of objectivity. And by what Nagel means by the view from nowhere is you start with your own point of view, what he calls your initial point of view. This is what I think, this is where I'm starting. And then you go from there to explore how other people view something. Now he's a philosopher, not a journalist, how other people view things. So that at the end of your inquiry, you understand the world from many points of view, not just where you started. So the view from nowhere is not mean, it was never meant by Nagel at least to mean that you are viewless. It means actually that you have expanded your view, widened the lens to understand your view and other people's points of view. 
Well, that's exactly what good journalists should do. They start with a hypothesis. This is what I think. This is what I think the story is going to be. But they are they don't end where they started. I love that. And because it's the it's the idea of recognizing your unconscious bias from philosophy, all these different um, ways of thinking or disciplines are talking that we got to recognize where we're coming from so that we can then go out and knock those down if we need to or figure out what's what. In fact, if you don't start there, then your unconscious biases are going to distort your reporting. Right, right. It's the biases you don't think you have that really will bite you. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. On that note, you know, I just wanted to say, as you were talking earlier, another example of activist journalism is so many Pulitzer Prize winners could be defined as activist journalism because it was journalism that was for the public good, for the public interest. The view, you know, the view from the public side or the people trying to make change or enlighten us about something. Right. Journalism stands for a lot of things. It stands for democracy. It stands for, you know, equal rights under the law, equal justice. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that you're you're on one party side or another party side, but there are these sort of fundamental things giving voice to the less powerful in society. These are all things that journalists, you know, the powerful in society should be watched. Uh, you know, a good way to solve social social problems is to put a spotlight on them. These are all values um, and points of view that journalists share. Um, and you could actually be a conservative or a liberal and, 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 and believe in these things. Um, so it's, you know, the journalist doesn't, they believe in, we believe in facts, right. you know, we believe in empiricism, right. we believe in verification, we believe in data. Um, and these things are not necessarily uncontroversial anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So why do you think we cling, like societally, why do we cling to this notion of objectivity? And, you know, and, and part of me, we define things differently. And, and so, you know, what you're saying is objectivity or neutrality or you know, activism. Everyone brings all their baggage to those words. Yeah. But we cling to objectivity here. And, and there's so much backlash about, no, oh my God, why are you talking about objectivity? That, that's still happening in the, in the public sphere. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a, several reasons. Yeah. One, one is that you have, there's been a kind of anti-intellectualism in journalism. We're just a craft. We, you know, we're not, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't bring any point of view to the news. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just reporting the news. Like it's a, like it's a, a thing that doesn't involve any human consciousness, you know, deciding which stories to put in the newspaper on the newscast or on the radio program. You know, I'm not deciding what the news is. It, it just happened and, and I, and I covered it. Well, that's just mindless and obviously not true. Um, I think a second reason is that the, term objectivity, which was an academic term and came from German social science, has other meanings. And, you know, objectivity, the antonym of objectivity is subjectivity. So if I'm, if I'm not subjective, I am objective. Okay, well, now we're, now we've kind of lost track of what objectivity of method is supposed to be. Now we're talking about the person and not the method. So it's easy to get off track. I think another reason is that, um, We've had newsrooms for years that were dominated by older white male editors and bosses who had this attitude that I'm not imposing my point of view here. Uh, everybody in this room agrees with, we all know what news is. We're not, there's no conscious choices being made. Well, that's the definition of a default culture where people don't even realize that there's a group thing going on. 
Um, and that groupthink is older white male. It you know it's insensitive to um, things that it doesn't understand, which has historically been people of color and what points of view of women and all kinds of underrepresented groups. So objectivity misdefined becomes default culture that is establishment. It's unconsciously liberal, unconsciously white, unconsciously male, et cetera, et cetera. When in fact, real objectivity would start by recognizing those unconscious biases and ma making sure you tried to overcome them because that's what objectivity was supposed to mean, right? Okay, let's do an experiment and set up the experiment in a scientific way. When Walter Lippmann first started talking about objectivity in journalism, he said, we need to bring a more scientific spirit to journalism. So we got lost along the way. And, and in practice, there's a lot of sloppy, lousy journalism. But when you get to these higher levels and you start to talk about, um, you know, the investigative work, the work that's the long series and spotlight teams and things that are done with absolute care, uh, you know, because they know if they make a mistake, they're going to have their butts in court. Those guys leave behind that simplistic definition of objectivity and are, you know, are really there in that scientific spirit. Yeah, it seems like the word objectivity has come to mean something very specific here. And now it's synonymous with journalism in the U.S. That's really difficult to overcome. You know, I wish we had never used the word. I, you know, I, I, I often talk about, well, let's think of a better term. In his column in the New York Times, Wes Lowry used the term moral clarity and suggested the journalist should replace the term objectivity with moral clarity. He might say I'm overstating his case a little bit. I have a problem with that. I'm, I worry that that replaces one lousy term with another lousy term because moral clarity, you know, people will go, oh, I have moral clarity. I'm absolutely sure of my point of view. And that could be true of people who are dead wrong, could be true of people who are who are absolute white supremacists, racists, anti-Semites, they have moral clarity. You know, a much better term in my mind would be something like moral curiosity or open-minded inquiry. Um, these, and there's other terms, uh, you know, other people have talked about 360-degree reporting. We don't have the language yet, but all of those terms come closer to something uh, that journalists across a spectrum of work would say, yeah, that I, I believe in open-minded inquiry. Um, I, I believe that we this is about curiosity. You know, as I've written elsewhere, the more you know about something, the less clear it becomes. The more conflicting data you will have, the more you have to cope with uncertainty. You know, if we haven't learned that from the pandemic, uh, we haven't learned anything. So clarity and accuracy are not always easy bedmates. And I think, uh, you know, with all of that being said, one, language is hard because we often change terms in an effort to shake off something that's become negative about the term. And then that just gets kind of gets applied to the new term. But I also agree in this case that objectivity, especially because it's got this such a strong and not journalistic antonym and subjectivity that that something like open-minded inquiry is, is, is more, a little bit more accurate, much more accurate. Um, but that other point about clarity. Now, um, I don't know if you're noticing this in your teaching or with your engagement with people, but I, I, you know, I've noticed a strong desire for simplicity, for clarity, for you know, black and white, uh, because the world is so fraught and, 
and stressful. Um, and that, you know, at a time when we really need to embrace the complexity and grapple with it and understand it, there is, I think, a collective uh, resistance to that or stress about that. And um, and I think that that's playing out in our national news as at the way things are covered. And, and it's somewhat always been true since t cable news has kind of come on the scene. But I'd love to have a conversation with you about how cable news shows or national news is covering some of these big stories, the debt ceiling, uh, vaccines, the election, um, presidents and their activities, um, and how that's, I'm going to just, how that's hindering our ability to navigate our society or our problems. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, in terms of uh, cable television landscape, you know, if you saw something on Fox News that was praiseworthy of, of a Democratic president, you'd be surprised. It would be, it would be out of character. Um, it would, it would be noteworthy because it would be a kind of uh, man bites dog moment. And uh, that begins to kind of socialize our audiences, and not just at Fox, but at MSNBC and CNN increasingly, it socializes the audience um, to expect um, to be rewarded, to expect to have their outrage reinforced and fed um, and satisfied. Uh, and, and, you know, if the journalist doesn't do that, you're mad because uh, you think she's not or he's not telling the truth. They're they're just kind of you know amplifying or being a mouthpiece or you know engaging in both sideism or false equivalency because you don't see these these are these two sides as equivalent morally or factually or in any any other way. So part of the problem that that we face is there's an audience expectation. Um, uh, that you are, you know, going to tell it as it is, and that one side is morally superior to the other. That was not true. You know, that 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 was not only not true, it would have been against FCC regulations, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about the state of the news industry with author, journalist, press critic, and professor Tom Rosenstiel. The second thing I think that's going on, which is kind of a double vision from this is you've got journalists in other quarters. I think you see this on broadcast television, NBC, CBS, and ABC, who think um, we're going to show that we're um, not partisan by being uh, critical of Biden um, in, in ways that are in their own way, overly simplistic and inaccurate. The coverage, let's say, of the infrastructure uh, bill just describes it by its price tag and doesn't tell anybody what's in that bill. Um, so, you you know, it's a fight, it's, it's a fight over a $3.5 trillion bill versus a $1.9 trillion bill. You know, I don't know anything other than that, other than the price or, you know, uh, Afghanistan was a disaster. Um, what well, was it? Is it, you know, is that true? That's a judgment that we probably not capable of making at this moment in time. Um, uh, and, and if we just sort of stuck to a descriptive level of journalism, it might be more accurate. Yes. So in the budget bill case, that factoid about how much the bill costs, well, that may be accurate, but it doesn't provide enough information or context to be informative or helpful. 
And in the case of Afghanistan, using adjectives rather than telling me what's going on, that's also really unhelpful because I'm getting no information. You're just telling me what you think I should feel or think. Neither of those really fit fully into what journalism needs to be. Because journalism has become more interpretive, um, but is still a business that occurs in real time, our interpretations, our analysis is pretty thin and it's not very helpful. And it just, it actually seems more judgmental than, than it is instructive. Um, you know, there's still a value in just actually telling me what happened. I, I just, to, to make this a little clearer for your listeners, there's only so much you can do in a minute 45 in a television story. And if you try to do too much, you do everything badly. And if you actually just told me what happened today, that might be enough and you might do a better job of that. Um, I think the same thing happens, you know, in newspapers. If you are the guy or the person who has to write the think piece about the White House every day and you only have two hours to do it, you're actually thinking the same thing you thought yesterday because you don't have enough time to go out and talk to new people and get to the bottom of anything. So you're adding two new interviews and essentially writing incrementally the same thing you wrote uh, the day before. There's a lot of that that goes on and makes our journalism, you know, more subjective all over again. You know, the other thing is there's a hypocrisy here. Journalists love to decry polarization, um, but uh, we spend a lot of time amplifying it. Um, why? Because we like controversy. There's academic research, new academic research out there that shows that um, TV, both cable and broadcast, uh, disproportionately represent the, the most extreme points of view in Congress. In other words, it's a lot easier for Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton to get on the air than it is for any more centrist uh, senator um, or House member. Um, uh, and so if they say, you know, uh, President Biden said this today, Republicans attacked him, it's usually going to be somebody flagrant on the extreme who's going to be quoted on the attack uh, and not the person who says, well, you know, we need to wait and see or something like that. Um, uh well, okay, if television is actually giving airtime only to the most extreme members of Congress, they're encouraging people to become more extreme in Congress because airtime is oxygen. Airtime helps you raise money. Airtime raises your profile. And so you have misrepresented who's in Congress or what the range of points of view is in Congress and encouraged people to, to swing further. And at the same time, we say, isn't this terrible that that politics has become so polarized. Well, we're, you know, we've got the lighter fluid to help it do it. Yeah, great point. And this goes back full circle to the point you made at the beginning about how when a news outlet is subscriber-based, it is the outrage and the emotion that's being stoked to get people to come and view and watch and listen and read. Whereas potentially, although it happens in print as well, when you've got a subscriber base, you're giving us a little bit more analysis and a little bit more uh, context, which which I think is important as well, um, although it's not like it doesn't exist there either. Yeah, I mean, I, we haven't mentioned it, but we should in this context. And that is, um, and, you know, it's in the news with the uh, whistleblower from Facebook uh, that the algorithms that are now predominate in social media and Instagram, Facebook, Twitter um, and, and elsewhere um, reward 
um, this sort of dopamine outrage. You know, they uh, they want to feed you things that they know you will engage with and, and like and share. And we know from academic research now that those are things that either make you euphoric or make you hysterically angry, mostly hysterically angry. That actually does better than joy. So, um, you know, what we're seeing in the mainstream media, uh, uh, you know, on cable is in its own way, an amplification of what is seated in social media. Yeah. So given this, given the fact that we are in a situation where outrage is prioritized in the algorithms and in news coverage that relies on um, advertising revenue. You know, you said recently at an event, and I'm so sorry, I was just about looking it up, but um, you're, you're quoted as saying, thinking our opinion has more moral integrity than genuine inquiry, you fear, you know, you fear if that's the case that all is lost. So I, I want to ask you, do you, do you feel like all is lost? I, well, you know, I, I mean, I'm an optimist and I'm concerned about us, yeah. but um, I'm, you know, where, where do you, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a worried optimist as well. Okay, uh, that's good. I, I think that there are there are br some bright spots here. Um, one of them is actually subscription revenue because we know that it's the stuff that uh, it's not the stuff that feeds outrage that drives subscriptions. It's the stuff that people find. Well, I didn't know that. I need to know that. Um, the second thing I think that's a potential source of optimism is uh, localism. Um, where we live is. Uh, a place where we have a lot of things in common across um, uh, other divides. Where we're most divided is over national politics. You know, if we're if we all live in Alabama, um, you know, we're all rooting for Bama, or you know, we, we're all worried about this where the highway is going to be. We're all aggravated by the same traffic jams. And um, you know, there's an old saying in politics: if you want to uh, improve bipartisanship, talk to mayors because they have very similar problems that they have to deal with regardless of the party. You know, they pick up the garbage and get the snow plowed and eat, although you don't have snow, it's yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have to evacuate from the virus. Right. Uh, I say that as a loving Californian. Uh, and there's some work now that suggests that when local publications uh, get more local and stop covering national uh, events when editorial page writers and co local columnists stop writing about national events, um, their engagement with that content goes up uh, because I think people want relief uh, from from the polarization. And of course, there's also they they have so many other sources for that information that they don't need to. Now that doesn't mean that you get so hyper. You know, there's a problem with the hyper local concept, which is. If you're covering something that, you know, that, you know, the town of Stinson Beach, um, you know, there aren't enough residents in Stinson Beach. And if you if you spend a lot of time covering it, it still takes a lot of time and you're not going to have a lot of engagement with it. Um, but, you know, you can find things that sort of serve the region um, that affect a lot of people locally um, where there is real common ground. Um, you know, it's hard. That's the other problem that journalism faces. You can't just be a bulletin board uh, for, for trivial matters the way that newspapers, you know, used to be full of that kind of stuff. And so were local TV stations. Um, well, there's so many other sources for that now. You know, I don't need my local TV station to know the weather. And I don't need uh, my local newspaper to know the uh, calendar, the local calendar. Uh, you know, that local TV stations don't even 
do sports, local sports in many cases now, because there's so many other sources for that information. So what you have to do locally to, to become indispensable is a higher bar. But I do think that, um, you know, we started the conversation by saying the greatest problems facing journalism um, financially are local. It's not clear whether there's a local financial model that will work. At the same time, politically and in terms of our democracy, our best hope is local. Yeah, so let's hope we can solve that. Yeah. Thank you to my guest, Tom Rosenstiel, journalist, press critic, and author of the seminal book on journalism, The Elements of Journalism, which is now in its third edition. Rosenstiel is also the author of 10 other books, including four novels. He's currently the Eleanor Merrill Visiting Professor on the Future of Journalism at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. This has been part two of our conversation. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net, PRX, or your favorite podcast channel. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.